Matthew chapter 22. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. If you've found your way there, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And, he brought, and they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Father, we ask that your word would do the work this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give me the grace uh, to faithfully uh, preach your word today. I pray that you would benefit each hearer this morning, that your Holy Spirit would give them exactly what they need, that, Lord, uh, if we need to be challenged today, that we would uh, rise up to the challenge. If we need to be convicted today, Lord, that we would repent. If we need to be encouraged or comforted today, Lord, that we would find our peace in you. And that for each one here, Lord, I don't know the situations. I don't know what needs to be heard today, uh, but you do. And so we just ask that your word would do the work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we saw over the last few weeks uh, in Matthew here that uh, there were three parables that Jesus gave to the Pharisees to explain the fact that uh, they had condemned him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and that he was bringing judgment on them, and that uh, in the end, as we even talked about last week, eventually in AD 70, the temple would be destroyed, and Judaism as it was known then would, would essentially be destroyed also with it. And so now we, we come to another attempt uh, from these Pharisees to try to uh, trap Jesus. They want to get him to say something that they can accuse him with. And being teachers of the law, being familiar with the Old Testament, they're trying to put Jesus in between Moses and the Romans here. And so we're going to unpack that. But there's some very applicable and relevant application for us this morning. So the title of the message today is Paying God What We Owe. Paying God What We Owe. The first thing I want you to see here is a curious cooperation in verses 15 through 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? I, I did not discover history until recently, in recent years. And a lot of people in my generation are not very familiar with history. And so knowing something about World War II, I understood that there were essentially two parties in World War II. You had the Axis and the Allies. And I had seen war movies and things like that where you see Russians and Americans working together. But it wasn't until this week that I started thinking about the fact that in World War II, the United States partnered with Joseph Stalin in Russia and Mao Zedong in China, two of the most brutal 
and godless dictators in all of history. But those were who we considered to be our allies in World War II. And it's a strange alliance because now we would say that those are probably two of our greatest enemies. So how could we have come together in World War II with these communist countries that are fundamentally opposed to who we are as Westerners and Americans? It was a curious cooperation. Why were we able to do it? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's the reason why. Because as bad as Stalin was and as bad as Mao was, Hitler was worse. And all of us were in agreement as nations that Germany needed to be stopped. And so we formed an alliance, even with our enemies, to defeat a common enemy. That's exactly what's happening here in this text. This is, a, this is an abnormal alliance. You'll notice that it mentions two groups here, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, who are the Herodians? The Herodians are descended from Idumeans or Edomites. They are enemies. They are ethnic en enemies of Israel. So not only are they ethnic en enemies, but they're political enemies. So Herodians were from the house of Herod. You remember Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. You hear of several of these. Herod was essentially... Uh, kind of like a, a mixed ethnicity, which was not a good thing for the Jews at that time. And he was installed into power by the Romans. So they said, well, we're going to give Jerusalem a Jewish kind of Jewish king so that the Jews will be happy, but he's really under our thumb, and, and we control him, and we can put him in, and then he's going to do what we want to do. The Pharisees didn't like that, of course, because they didn't like the Romans. They didn't believe that they should be under the Roman government at all. They believed that Israel should be reestablished by the Messiah, and be their own nation again, and not have to live under Roman rule. So these two groups that are ethnically against each other and also politically against each other have now teamed up against Jesus in this text. So why would they do that? It's because they knew that the one person who could overthrow the rule of Herod's house and the rule of the Pharisees, both the religious and the political rule, was Messiah. Messiah had the authority to come into Israel and set up his kingdom. And they knew from prophecy that because he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that every government, Roman or otherwise, would be submitted underneath of his kingly authority. And so he is a tremendous threat to both of these groups. Both of them will lose their power. They will lose their political influence. Uh, they will lose their spiritual authority because this Messiah is going to come and when he comes, everyone else gets put under him. As the scripture says, all of his enemies will become his footstools. So they were desperate to have this alliance. When was the last time that you were so desperate to see God work through your church that you crossed uncomfortable lines to see the kingdom advance? Think about it. We're cursed with comfort in this nation we don't have to really do a lot of hard things. The biggest challenges that we have in America are generally health challenges if we don't have the medicine to cure them. If you get something like cancer, there's not a whole lot that you can do that's really effective to treat that. And so it is something that happens to you that you're not able to mitigate, you're not able to deal with. But the reality is, is in general, even, even in times like we are now where we have to maybe tighten our belts a little bit or or make adjustments to our lives, we're not really suffering that much from a worldly perspective, especially in comparison with a lot of other people. 
these two groups were willing to put aside their ethnic differences. They were willing to put aside their political differences. They were, they were even willing to give up a little bit of their authority and their power in order to work together because they were so desperate uh, to see their kingdom continue, that they were willing to work together and coexist with each other as, as enemies in order to come against this other enemy. I want to tell you this morning that we have a great enemy. The devil is real. He is leading people astray. There are people in Haywood County today, while we were talking, that will die and will go to hell forever, and there's no, there's no hope for them then. That is going to happen today. It will happen to someone. That's real. The question is, is that enemy a great enough threat to the, to the kingdom of God for us to make sacrifices and to be uncomfortable in order to fight against that enemy? Are we willing to put aside the minor things in order to cooperate together? We hosted our Haywood Baptist Association here last Tuesday with several churches represented. There's over 60 churches in the Haywood Baptist Association. And we had the privilege of hosting them and getting to worship with them and hearing a good uh, word from another pastor up the road here. We're not like every other Baptist church here. We all know that. But we were, we were willing to put aside some of those differences because we have a common goal. People need to hear the gospel. That's more important than music styles or what the building looks like or even the style of preaching. We all have our preferences of things that we like and don't like, but the reality is when it comes time for war, we're able to put those things aside. And so the U.S. was willing to cooperate with Russia and China in World War II, but how often do we hold ourselves back from cooperating because of things that really aren't that big of a deal in in the scope of history? Wars are difficult and not easy. We, we are in a war. There, there is, being in Christian is not easy. Uh, the, a church accomplishing its mission in being healthy is not easy. We have opposition. We are working against a curse. We are working against an enemy. It is hard. And victories are costly and not cheap. If we want success, if we want to see the kingdom of God expand in Waynesville, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us a lot. It might cost us everything. There are people today that act like God's kingdom is going to advance with less effort than they put into their garden every year. They'll spend more time out in the garden growing vegetables than they will serving God and preaching the gospel. And why would we think that we would reap a better harvest of souls than we would of peppers or beans when we don't put the same amount of work in? So we need an abnormal alliance. We need to work together against these common enemies. Also notice there's an artful ambush here. These these are clever guys. These are educated. Again, they're they're politicians. They know how to manipulate. They know how to blackmail. They know how to apply pressure. This is an artful ambush. And notice it's not the Pharisees and Herodians that are coming to Jesus here. It's their disciples that are coming. Why? Because they had already tried. Jesus had already rebuked them and shamed them publicly multiple times at this point. So these guys are flying in under the radar as just some citizens that uh, are trying to flatter Jesus. Notice the language that they use there. We know that you are the truthful, or that you are truthful and you teach the way of God and truth, and you don't care about what anybody thinks, Jesus. You're not partial to anyone. So they try to butter him up a little bit to get him to say something stupid so that they can accuse him, so that they can trap him. Of course, they didn't realize who they were really talking to. 
But there's something we got to point out about these disciples here. They didn't cower when the time came to confront Jesus. So even though these men did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, even though they were opposed to God, they were well-trained. They were good disciples. The Pharisees and the Herodians had trained them. Of This is one of the greatest teachers in Israel. Everybody thinks that he's a prophet. He's doing miracles, and he's even put us to shame in public before. But we want you to go and talk to him, and you know what the answer was? Yes, I'll do it. I'm not scared. I'll stand up, and I'll do it, even if it's hard, even if I get made fun of. These were extremely faithful and disciplined disciples here. Even though they were wrong, they, didn't, they weren't cowards. They didn't stand down from Jesus. They were willing to go up and confront him and try to trap him. The goal here is to set Jesus up as a traitor to either Moses or Caesar. We're going to unpack that a little bit more, but they're, they're putting him in this position where if he says, don't pay the tax, and they're going to say, oh, well, you're rebelling against the Roman government. So we're going to tell the Romans that you're now leading a resistance movement against them. If he says, no, do pay the tax, then they're saying, oh, well, you're, co- you're compromising. You're a friend of the Romans. You're not really a friend of the Jews. You're just like Herod and these others. That's a compromiser. And so the way that they see it is, is we've got him. There's nothing that he can say. There's nothing that he can do here to get out of this one. We've got him backed into a corner. So think about these disciples and the fact that they were able to come and do this tactical move against Jesus. Now, again, we understand, and we're going to see later on, Jesus is God. He, he understands. He can't be tricked. He made those guys. The only reason they can even think thoughts is because Jesus says so. So he knows exactly what's going on. But think about the amount of training and shrewdness that you have to have to try to put somebody into this kind of position. You have to be a crafty person. You have to be an intelligent person. So they had good training. Think about this. If your loved one's in a fire, every second matters to get them out of that fire. If this building was on fire, one second can be the difference between life or death for one of us. It's a, da- it's a dangerous thing. So firefighters and God have this in common. They both use preparation to save people from a fiery death. I don't want a firefighter that it's his first day on the job trying to save my kids in a fire. I want a firefighter that's been trained, that has the right equipment, that knows what he's doing, because every second matters. This is the reason why our tax money pays for firefighters and police officers and EMS and other first responders to be available 24-7. Why? Because I don't want to wait for them to clock in when I need need help. I want them to be there immediately and ready to handle the situation and ready to save my life or the life of somebody that I care about. And so it's worth it for me to pay for them to have the preparation and training that they need to do the job that they're called to do. God expects the same thing of us. We are called to save people from a fiery death, and we need to be prepared to do that because every second matters. We're doing a festival this afternoon. Many of you in here are going to be volunteering for that. So what's going to happen in two hours from now in that parking lot over there when you run into an unbeliever? Are you going to be ready to give them a saving word from God to save them from a firing death, or are you going to choke when the time comes? Let's be honest. We've all done it. We've all looked back and said, oh, I had an opportunity. I just missed it. I wasn't paying attention, or I felt nervous, or I felt like I was too busy. I've done that. I'm not better than anybody else. We've all done that. Are you going to wish that you had more preparation when that time comes? When you look back, are you going to regret that you weren't prepared to give that person a saving word from God? Are you going to regret missing those hours of training that were available to you in Sunday school and growth groups and street ministry? 
all those opportunities that you let go by where you, you didn't take that time to get that training and preparation and now here it is, life and death of somebody before you and you're not ready because you didn't take the time to train. Training never seems useful until it is. And so as much as we can condemn these men for coming and trying to trap Jesus, they were ready. They were prepared. Jesus was doing the same thing with his disciples so that when the time came for them to suffer, they were ready. This church wouldn't be here today if they weren't. He had to train them, and he had to train them quickly, and he had to prepare them for a lot of suffering. A lot of us will never experience the suffering that the apostles or even our brothers and sisters today in some places will experience. And we should be thankful for that because, let's be honest, we might not be ready if it did come today. We might not be ready. So we saw this curious cooperation here. The second thing I want us to see is a common currency. Look at verses 18 through the beginning of 21 there. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So a couple things about this coin that, that's interesting. It helps us really understand what's going on here. So the first thing is, is this coin was humiliating to the Jews. Jews were humiliated by this and by paying the Roman tax because they couldn't resist it. The Romans said, you have to pay this poll tax. The poll tax is also called a head tax or a census is where we get the word census from, where every, uh, every person was required to pay this denarius annually to the Roman government. Now, of course, the Romans used that for uh, protection, for roads, for military, for these various uh, kind of things that people use. So it was a tax. But it was forced onto the Jews. This wasn't something that they had, well, since you're a Jew and since you're a different nation than the other Romans, you guys can choose to pay the tax or not choose to pay the tax. That wasn't an option. The Romans said, you will, you will do this or you will end up in jail or dead if you don't pay it. The Jews didn't like that. Again, they wanted to be their own nation. They wanted to be out from under Rome. And every time Rome oppressed them and, and forced them to do things they didn't want to do, it was humiliated to them because they're thinking, what about when we were under King David or King Solomon? We were one of the most uh, splendorous kingdoms, the wealthiest, the most powerful. What about our people are the ones that destroyed the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. We are the ones that God gave victor victory over all these Canaanite groups. And here we are. I can't even say no to, to what to do with my money. Even the Romans tell me what to do with my money. It's humiliating to them. In fact, this resistance, there was a man named Judas the Galilean. If you look in Acts, whenever the apostles are preaching, Gamaliel, the, the, Jewish, the famous Jewish rabbi, reminds them about Judas the Galilean who began the Zealot movement in 86. So the Zealot movement was basically a, a Roman resistance movement of the Jews. So they, would, they had like secret assassins where they would assassinate Roman officials. They would refuse to pay their taxes. They were always trying to do things kind of secretly to disrupt the Roman government or to cause problems for the Roman government. And in AD 6, he began this kind of movement. You'll remember uh, one of the apostles was Simon the Zealot. So he was actually a, a part of this group before Jesus called him to follow him. So he obviously was opposed to the Romans. But eventually, this Zealot group ended up leading a huge Jewish rebellion in AD 66, which is what ended up causing the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans finally got fed up and said, we're tired of, of you Jews resisting us, so we're just going to kill all of you. And so like I said last week, they went in AD 70, they burnt the temple down, they killed over a million Jews. 
and scattered them everywhere and destroyed the whole city with fire because they just said, we're done messing with you guys. And so that's, that shows you the tension. The fact that there was this uprising is this anger towards the Romans of get out of our city, leave us alone, let us do our own thing. And it's humiliating that they have to even handle this Roman money. They can't even use their own money. They have to use the Roman money. But it's not just humi- humiliating, but this coin was heretical. So why was it that they, that, that they hated this coin so much? So this denarius that, that they got was about a day's wages worth of money, and it likely had the emperor Tiberius on it. And here's what it would have looked like. It's very similar to American money, by the way, American coins. On one side, it had a, a face of Tiberius on that side, and it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side... It has a picture of Tiberius seated on a throne with priestly robes, and it says highest priest is what it says on the other side. And so you might understand why the Jews were offended by that, because they had their own high priest, and they didn't want to be under the emperor's rule, but they certainly did not want to give worship to the emperor, which we understand even in the early church, it was very simple Listen, you can worship whatever God you want as long as you recognize that Caesar is Lord. And if you'll just offer this pinch of incense in the fire and say Caesar is Lord, then you can believe in Jesus or whoever you want. That's fine. And there were many in the early church that said, no, I would rather die than offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. I will not declare him to be Lord. I will not even pretend that he's Lord. I would rather die. And many of them did. The Jews were the same way here. So they, the, it, what this coin represented was the sovereignty and the lordship and the godhood, the divinity of the Roman emperor, which is extremely offensive to a Jewish person. In fact, the, Jew, the Jews actually believed that coins like this were actually a violation of the second commandment because they were graven images of a false god. And so they, did, they didn't even want to touch them or look at them. So again, it was humiliating the fact that they felt like they had to break the second commandment and they didn't have a choice, that the Romans made them do it. They wouldn't let them use their own money. And so they hated this coin. Now, take a second and think about American money. Uh, America uh, has borrowed a lot from the Roman Empire. So think about any kind of American coin that you have. It's very similar. There's a legend or, or a picture of a famous figure, and then there's an inscription on the back. So most of ours have U.S. presidents, and U.S. presidents are representative of a government official, of the civil government. But you notice what's different? Our, our money has a different inscription than the Romans is. You guys know what it is? In God we trust, right? Why do they have that? Because the founding fathers and others understood the difference between the civil government and the government of God. That while the civil government may be in charge of minting the money, God is, in, is worthy of our trust. Our trust is not in the civil government, it's actually in the Lord. Even our money declares that even today. And it's in direct contrast to this Roman idea that the government is not God, that there is a difference. So even when you look at a piece of money, remember, this is different. The government is not God. Our, our trust is not in this money. It's not in this government. It's not in this nation. It's in Christ. So Jesus was not afraid of the emperor's image. Notice he tells them, bring me this heretical coin. He's, he's not afraid of the image of the emperor because he knew that the emperor was a man under authority. Right? What, what, what makes it a graven image of a foreign god? Well, if you believe that it is a foreign god, if you think it's just a man under the authority of God, then it loses all of its spiritual power. Jesus was not afraid to look at an image of the emperor. He made the emperor. 
He's not concerned about him. So governments have the ability today to claim whatever power they want. Some of them claim more than others. But in Psalm 2, God laughs at their attempts at sovereignty. That's what it says in Psalm 2. They plot and they rage and they fight and they do all these kind of things, and God sits in heaven and laughs at them. Of, of that's, that's cute, that you think that, that you can do all of this as though I do not give you the authority to do what you do. We, f- we forget, again, governments rise and fall on the will of God. The, the amount of military, the, the economy, all these kind of things, while those things are all important and they're useful, it is only by the will of God that they exist even today. When, the day that Jesus returns, all human governments will cease to exist. As soon as he comes back, as soon as, soon as we hear that sound of his return, the, the king has arrived. Every other government is then put under, underneath of him. Regardless of your view of the end times, that is one thing we can all agree on, is when King Jesus comes, he is not the king of a particular nations. He is the king of kings. Every other government will be submitted underneath of him. So he's not threatened by this image of the emperor. He's not threatened by the Roman Empire. He's not concerned about them. They exist because he decided that they exist. That's the only reason why. Jesus was not concerned about the Roman Empire because he knew that while Caesar had stamped his image on a coin, God has stamped his image on you. Jesus didn't die for Rome. He died for you. He's not concerned about Rome. Jesus is not concerned about America as an institution. He doesn't need America. Jesus is concerned about you. He's concerned about those people that are his. He's concerned about your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers. He did not die for a nation. He did not die for a government. He died for people. And we, ha- we have to be careful to remember that. The-, the gospel is not the restoration of America to the 1950s. That's not the gospel. The gospel is people repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus alone. The gospel is about a kingdom. It's about a monarchy with a king. Not about presidents or, or politicians or representatives or senators. That's not his primary concern. It shouldn't be our primary concern either. Not that those things are unimportant. But God didn't stamp his image on America. He stamped his image on us. That's his priority. The Bible says that, that God puts his seal on you of the Holy Spirit. You know, a seal is like a king. He has a, a ring that's representative of him that he's able to, to press onto something. And when he seals something... Uh, it is final. You remember the story of Daniel when the king issued the decree that if anyone prays to another god that he'll be cast into the den of lions. He had to enforce that. Even though Daniel was his friend, once the king has said it, once he has sealed it, it is sealed. It is final. It cannot be changed. There's no one who has enough authority to change what the king has decreed. God has put the seal of his Holy Spirit on you, Christian, which cannot change and we see that seal in the gifts of the Spirit. One of the ways that we're able to tell whether someone has been sealed by the Spirit of God is their spiritual gifts. What does that mean? That means that if you aren't using your spiritual gifts in the church, then you aren't showing the world who you belong to. How does, how does the world know who your Lord is? How, how does your church family know who your Lord is? One of the ways they know is by you demonstrating that sealing of the Holy Spirit through the use of your spiritual gifts in the church. Of this person has a supernatural ability to to care for others or to have an understanding of the word or 
uh, this person has incredible mercy towards other people who are suffering. Whatever the, the different gifts are that, that you have, when you see that in a person, especially if you've known the person before they were in Christ and you see the difference, wow, this person is, is different. This is something that God has done in this person, not something that they did. It's something that God gave them for the church, for the building up of the church. So we see there's a curious cooperation against Jesus here, and there's this common currency here of this coin. But then finally, let's look at a clarified constraint. The end of verse 21 and 22 there. Then he said to him, to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. So there's a couple things that we want to look at here. The first is a payment owed. So this, this word render is interesting. It's, it's important to understand when he says render something. Notice he doesn't say give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's because he uses this word that we translate into English as render. It literally means to give back. It means to give back something that's owed. And so there is a moral obligation and a responsibility to pay this person that is not optional. What he's saying here is, is you use the roads, you want military protection, you want to be able to, to travel and not get attacked by bandits and these other things. During this time, the Roman Empire was like the safest place in the world. If you went outside the Roman Empire, there were barbarians and robbers and everybody and uh, even like in Asia, they're constantly getting raided by other groups all the time. There wasn't a lot of security. So part of your taxes paid for centurions and soldiers and these other things so that you could feel safe on the street. You knew if centurions were out there, as long as you weren't causing trouble, that uh, things were going to be under control. There weren't going to be a lot, of, a lot of violent crimes and things like that uh, that would go unpunished, but that there was order provided in the empire. Jesus is saying, you need to pay Caesar for that. It's right for you to pay for that. You're using those things. It's not fair for you to take those things for free and not pay for them. So he's saying render or give back or pay back Caesar what belongs to him. If you don't want to pay Caesar, fine. Then you have no military protection. Then you can't live in this empire. Then you aren't going to have the nice roads to travel on. You're not going to be able to operate your business. You're not going to be able to do these things. If you want to give all that up and you want to move out into another country... That's fine, but if you're going to live here and you're going to receive the benefits that the civil government provides for you here, then you need to pay them for the work that they're doing. The Bible has a general principle that people need to get paid for their work. And so the civil government does work. They do provide services for their citizens and security for their citizens. And so as believers and, and in obedience to God's word, it's fair to compensate people for the work they're doing. For instance, I mentioned emergency workers. It is totally fair for us to pay emergency workers and to pay them well so that when we have an emergency, they're there and they have the equipment and training and things that we need. One of the things that, that we're struggling with right now is short staffing everywhere is really hard and we're feeling that. And so it's hard because people are having to pay more and more and more to try to get workers to come in. But the reality is, is that's a good thing because you know what? If you need that service, then you need to be able to pay what it costs in order to be able to render that service. And, and obviously there's right ways and wrong ways to go about doing that, but the reality is is that I don't mind uh, to pay money for something like health care when I want health care because it's a service that they're giving to me. I don't expect doctors to work for free or police officers or anybody. And as Christians, we shouldn't uh, do that. We should expect everyone to be paid for the work that they're doing. So Jesus is pointing out here, uh, you owe the government something. 
Uh, and not only that, but it's a moral obligation and a responsibility that you have. In other words, if you are not paying the government for what you're doing, that's actually a sin for you. If someone is rendering a service to you or if they're doing something for you and you're not compensating that person, that's sinful because you're, you're robbing that person and you're disobeying God because, again, this person is not receiving a reward for the work that they're doing. They're not being fairly compensated for the work that they're doing. So he's, he's, showing, he's showing this. Uh, think about the word allegiance. So we have a pledge of allegiance in America. This is a word that, that we use in a formal way like that, but we don't use it in everyday terms. So I want to give you a definition of allegiance. Allegiance, according to the dictionary, is the loyalty of a citizen to his or her government or of a subject to his or her sovereign. So it's loyalty to a sovereign. So we have a pledge of allegiance to America. As American citizens, we receive many benefits as, as American citizens. And so to an extent, we give our allegiance to America in paying taxes and electing officials and cooperating with the laws of America and, and obeying the laws of the civil government. These are all ways that we show our allegiance to this country so that we receive the benefits of being in this country. But remember, as we've said, and as Matthew has really pointed out a lot in, in, this, uh, in this book, Chris and I were just talking earlier about how much this seems to be coming up in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is teaching the king's, kingship of Jesus, we are dual citizens. We have to start thinking of ourselves that way. So while we have allegiance to America in our citizenship, our ultimate allegiance, our highest allegiance is to Christ. Uh, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. This building is an embassy of the kingdom of God, and you are ambassadors if you're in Christ. You're a liaison between the world and the kingdom of heaven. Your job is to let people know about the king and also to let people know that the king is on his way and that when he arrives, uh, they need to be citizens of that kingdom too because Jesus said you're either for him or against him. And so that's part of the message that we're bringing to people. So what's the opposite of allegiance? Well, according to the dictionary, the opposite of allegiance is treason. So instead of putting your trust or, or putting your loyalty to something, you're disloyal or you're distrusting of that sovereign government. Uh, if you do something to try to go against the president of the United States or to try to go against a fish, an official or something like that, you will be charged with treason, which in America is a very high charge that can warrant your execution. It's very serious to be a traitor to a nation. We can be traitors to Christ, too. So think about this this morning. This, this is hard to think about, but I want you to think about it. If we, had a, if we had a screen up over here and we could post your skills and experience, your resume, your bank statement, and your calendar this morning, would it show allegiance to the nation out there, which is passing away, or would it show allegiance to the nation in here, which is eternal? What is it going to show? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that information, but God does. So what happens when the actions that we take, the decisions that we make, the way that we use our time and our resources and our energy, what happens when that shows a greater allegiance to, to this world that is passing away than it does to the kingdom that we've been brought into, our king, our sovereign? Well, the word for that the opposite of allegiance is treason. That's the opposite. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, when we look at our lives, when we look at what we're, we're doing, are we, are we being loyal to Christ or are we being a traitor 
Are we giving those things that belong to him to someone else or to something else or even to ourselves? Who is our allegiance to this morning? If Jesus returned today, how would he find you? Would he find you as a loyal subject who's, who's working for his kingdom, who's working to advance his kingdom, who's using everything that God has given you for his kingdom that's going to last forever? Or is he going to find you using it for things that are all going to pass away in the end? As we, I could talk for a long time, and I'm not, about Miss Eleanor, but I can truly say that Miss Eleanor is one of the godliest women that I have ever met in my life. Truly. And we were talking when she passed. You know, the fact that she sent that card before she died and it arrived after she died, and the one thing that she wants to say to you this morning, church, is to make Jesus the ruler of your life, to remember that he's the ruler of your life. That's an incredible testimony. Uh, that she that she left behind. I can tell you from what I do know about her life that she was she was found to be a loyal subject. She has more treasure now than she did here in a lot of ways. She spent decades discipling kids including some of my own kids. Uh, she was a loyal subject and, and I hope that when my time comes that I can have a testimony like that that to send the church on after me and say, I've done everything that I can to invest into this church, and now the next generation is going to have to take it on. I'm going to go receive my reward now. I have made as much of an investment as I can make, and now I'm going to go receive the return on my investment, which my guess is very large <laughs> on what she has invested in. Because, why? Because she didn't put her stuff in the world out there. She put it in the world in here. She spent her time and her energy and her resources in here where moth and rust cannot destroy, as Jesus said. She has laid up her treasure in heaven. So when you ask yourself, am I going to be found to be a loyal subject or a traitor? If you don't like the answer to that question, what are you going to do about it? I can't answer that for you today. But when you look at your calendar, when you look at your skills, when you look at your bank account, when you look at these kind of things, I can't make those decisions for you. I can't say you have to do this or you have to do that in order to be a loyal subject. But you do need to make whatever decision is necessary for you to have a clear conscience. So that next week, or even sooner, or tomorrow, that you can say, if Jesus returns, I know that if he looks at those things, that he, he will be uh, satisfied. He will see me as a loyal subject to him. He will see that my allegiance lies with him. Uh, there's a lot of Christians that will spend uh, resources and things out in the world. Of, we want to help the homeless, and we want to feed hungry people, and we want to help children. None of those things are bad. Those are all good things. But the question is, if those things are not connected to the expansion of the kingdom of God, they're ultimately fruitless. There, there has to be a gospel connection there. There's a lot of churches that go out and are really busy doing a lot of stuff in the community and spending a lot of money. But if, if the gospel is not a part of what they're doing, it's all, it's all for nothing. When Jesus returns, they won't have anything to show. We have games this afternoon and food and all this kind of stuff for the community. But you know what? If you guys don't have that conversation with the people that come about Jesus, it's a complete waste of time. The only reason we're doing any of that is to have that chance to speak life to somebody, to give them the good news of Jesus. That's the only reason why we're doing any of it. And if we fail to do that, if, if one person walks out of here this afternoon and doesn't hear about King Jesus, then we've failed. We, we have not done what we have set out to do. And so we can have the coolest event, we can have the most fun and and have a great time, but that's not what it's about. 
This world is passing away. So you have to ask yourself, what, what am I going to do about it? What do I have to do today? What decision do I have to make in my mind right now in order to have a clear conscience before God on the last day? We also see that there's a limitation showed. And, and, and uh, to be practical, not just spiritual, but to be practical, we've got to look at this because Jesus is talking about this. It, there's a limit that's being showed here, which is that the civil government has both authority and it has limitations. This is a, an issue that we're having to deal with as Christians. And those who are Gen Z in here, Generation Z, or the children in here, okay, you guys are going to have to deal with this more than my generation and those older than me are going to have to deal with. We're going to have to have an understanding of how do, we, how do we be citizens of these two governments? Because you're growing up as Americans, and Lord willing, you will all be Christians, and you'll be a part of that kingdom, and you're going to have to figure that out. What Jesus is saying here is that the civil government has authority. When he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, he's saying Caesar has the right to demand that you pay for the services that he offers to you. He has the right to do that. He has authority from God to do that. Uh, the American government has the authority to demand that you pay taxes. I know some people might not agree with that, but according to Scripture, the civil government is there for your benefit. It's there for the restraint of the wicked. And when the government asks you to pay taxes, you have an obligation to pay your taxes and to do it joyfully as a Christian, knowing that you're submitting to God by paying those taxes for the services that you receive from the government. And we can all, we, if I surveyed today, we would all have a different opinion about what the right form of government is or how to handle certain issues. We would all have different opinions, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, God, is, God has not put us in authority to make those kind of decisions, but he has put us in a position to be obedient and to work for the welfare of our country and our society. And so uh, I don't want to just pay taxes because I want the police to show up when I need them, but I want them to show up for my neighbor too, even if that neighbor's an unbeliever, because it's good for all of us as human beings to be working together in a community. So it has authority, but it also has limitations. So think about that coin. As he's holding the coin, and you see the face of Tiberius, the face of Caesar. Render under Caesar what Caesar's, but then when you flip it over, and you see highest priest, that's a religious designation. He's saying, render under God what's God's. In other words, pay the government your taxes, but not your worship. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. They have a right to demand services from you in this life. They do not have a right to demand services in this kingdom, which is the reason why in America, what happens in this room is not under the control of the civil government. Why? Because this is, again, this is the embassy of a, of a different kingdom, of a sovereign nation. And so they, the government does not have the right to tell us how to worship because God has said, there's only one person worthy of worship, and that's me. And so you do not give it to the government. You do not give it to any other false gods. You do not give it to yourself. You do not give it to anybody else. Render unto God what is God. What is God's? His worship, he demands of you, and you owe it to him the same way that you owe your taxes uh, to the civil government. So... The Roman Empire is providing all these goods and services, physical protection, quality roads, general well-being in exchange for its taxes. MacArthur says this. He says, The state has the divine right to assess taxes that are within its sphere of responsibility, and its citizens have the divine obligation to pay them. But here, here's, here's another thing that we have, we have to be thinking about as Christians. It's, it's hard, and, and, and I think sometimes we are underestimating how quickly we're going to have to deal with these kind of issues. And so I, I want to say this pastorally so that you begin thinking about it and praying about it. 
Good citizenship, being a good citizen, includes civil disobedience and verbal opposition to the government when civil authorities exceed their jurisdictions. What that means is this. The, the government is designed to provide for the welfare of society for citizens. It's designed to restrain the wicked, right? We don't want people just committing crimes with no consequences. We want law enforcement. We want criminals to be punished for committing crimes against citizens. We want to keep each other safe. That's a good thing. But governments have a tendency to exceed their limitations because they're human. There is no perfect human government. Uh, we have wonderful freedoms here in America, but we can all agree that the American government has never been perfect, even from the beginning. Uh, our founding fathers would agree with that, uh, that it presupposes a Christian morality, and now that we don't have that, that's why we are beginning to see things unravel. That's why instead of the government staying within its jurisdiction of working for the good of the citizens, it's now extending to a moral and even spiritual judge on what is and is not okay morally and spiritually in our country. That's not their jurisdiction to decide. So how do we, how do we, how do we think about resisting that as Christians? Well, Christians don't use violence. So we're not advocating for rioting. We're not going to be like the zealots were and assassinate people or... Uh, try to disrupt, you know, the whole government. Or that, that, that's not the way that we respond as Christians. But we use our words. Historically, Christians have used their words to speak out against these violations and things like civil disobedience. In other words, pay taxes for your roads. We all want roads. We, that, that's good. There's nothing moral or spiritual about roads or military or law enforcement or uh, these various things that we receive. But if the government begins to tell us, uh, now you have to pay for a particular morality or a particular spirituality that's outside of their jurisdiction, we do have an obligation as Christians to remind them that that's not their jurisdiction. And the other thing that we have to understand is that's good citizenship. So for, for me, telling, uh, tell, so for instance, if, if the uh, leadership of Waynesville said, you guys are not allowed to meet on Sunday morning because we said, whatever their reason is. Our answer to that is, is your jurisdiction actually doesn't control the church here. This church belongs to God, and so we will close if God says, but you can't tell us to do that. That's You don't have the authority to do that. Now, that sounds uh, harsh or rebellious, but it's actually good citizenship because guess what? You know what's really good for those officials is if they're staying in their wheelhouse of doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's good for them. And so as Christians, the loving thing to do when we see a government overstepping its bounds isn't, well, let's just destroy the government. The answer is correction of saying, uh, just remember what your responsibilities are. Your responsibility isn't tell telling me what to do with my children or how I'm supposed to worship or what my moral beliefs have to be or what my religion has to be. That's, that's none of your business. You're, you're working for the civil wel welfare of this society. And by reminding them that through our words, through things like writing and speaking and taking opportunities to meet government officials and talk with them and build relationships, because we have to understand that a lot of unbelievers don't understand this. They, they think that secularism is the best religion and that if we just push that on everybody, then that will fix society. But what we're seeing happen is it's getting worse. So as believers, we have to have conversations with people. And so our job is not to, to fight anybody with our bodies, but we do want to make arguments with our words and say, have you considered things like infringing our religious rights actually affects other people even that don't believe with us? It's actually not good for my unbelieving neighbor for you to tell me what to do in church. It's actually not good for them. It's actually not good for you as a government official to do that. 
And so part of the, the, the application that we need to, to take from this text today is uh, the civil government is not evil. We're not anti-government people. That, that, that's not who we are as Christians. Jesus is clear about that here. In the things that God has given them to do, we need to let them do their jobs, and we need to support them in doing their jobs for those good things. But in the things that belong to God alone, they do not have jurisdiction, and we need to occasionally remind them uh, that they are overstepping their bounds. And we do that in a loving way that's for the good of everyone, even if it's hard sometimes. Uh, things that are good are not always easy. That, that's usually the way that things work, including in the church. Uh, we know this. So in conclusion, I want to read a passage that you know many of you have probably heard even on the news or something like that, but I want us to read it so that we, in context of this we really understand what it is, which is Romans 13. So I'm just going to read it to you quickly. Think about this as we close in, in context of everything that we've heard today. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour, hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. As we have heard this, Lord, uh, we all desire to be found your loyal subjects when you return. We want you to be pleased with the way that we have given our lives to you, Lord. And for those who have never sworn their allegiance to you, whether that's for the first time as believers, or even the, uh, those of us who have may, may have gone astray, Lord, that today would be the day that we would pl pledge our full allegiance to you as our king, and that you own everything that we have, that you own us, that we are your possession, and that, uh, Lord, we don't get to decide whether we want to serve you or, or whether we want to uh, spend our time or our money or our energy on things that are about you, Lord, that you've bought all of those things, you're in charge. So we just submit ourselves to you this morning, Lord, as, as individuals, as your children. We submit ourselves to you as a church, Lord. We, we want to please you with everything that's done. Lord, uh, I just ask if there's one here this morning that does not know you truly, that you would show them their need for you today. I can't do that. That's something that only you can do. As for each one of us, Lord, that we would leave uh, resolved today 
that our allegiance is to you, that we would be found faithful in the end. In Jesus' name, amen.